The following audio content is a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at www.upc.org. People matter to God. Uh, We say that, we affirm that, but we don't always feel it, do we? Our hearts are tricky things. Uh, Followers of Jesus, believers in the Bible, uh, uphold the thought that after the fall, our hearts are twisted, and sometimes we don't feel the emotions that align well with our professions. And uh, the psalmist says in Psalm 4, too, uh, how long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? Sometimes we wrap our hearts around things that have very little value uh, whatsoever, and yet people matter uh, to God. Some of us sometimes feel like uh, David Finch, who writes a column in uh, last week's New York Times. He's a a gentleman who struggles with Asperger's, which is um, a form of autism. It's it's fairly high-functioning, but uh, it impairs a person's ability to have empathy for other people, Asperger's. And so he writes of his struggle to uh, gain empathy. Acquiring empathy seemed a taller order, he writes. Uh, uh, Given that my Aspergerish point of reference is myself in every circumstance. Someone just slipped and killed himself in the men's room? I see. How long until they get him out of there so I can go? But I've learned that people can develop empathy, uh, even if by rote. With diligent practice, it can evolve from a contrived acknowledgement of other people's feelings to the real thing. And if uh, this gentleman, whose name is David Finch, can grow in his capacity to know and experience and feel that people matter, how much more can we, who under the influence of the Holy Spirit are being formed into the likeness of Jesus Christ, taking on his heart in our lives more and more each day. And this is the process that God is working with Jonah. Jonah is going to hear God ask him a question here at the end of the book. The same question, but two times. As though Jonah were hard of healing, hearing, God will uh, repeat the question. The first time God asked Jonah the question, it's to expose his anger. The second time God asked Jonah the question, it's to invite him to a life of compassion. Let's look at these uh, questions. Open up your Bible, if you would, please, to Jonah chapter 4. You'll find that on page 753 of the Pew Bible. We're going to read. Let's stand and read that uh, text together. Jonah chapter 4. Read out loud. Let's actually start at the last verse of chapter 3. That's verse 10. We'll read all the way through the end of chapter 4. And when we're done reading, I'll say, This is the word of the Lord. So that if you believe it, you can say, Thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading God's word. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. But this was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said while I was still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning. For I knew that you are a gracious God, 
and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. And now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? Then Jonah went out of the city and sat down east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade, waiting to see what would become of the city. The Lord God appointed a bush and made it come up over Jonah to give shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was very happy about the bush. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the bush so that it withered. When the sun rose, God prepared a sultry east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and asked that he might die. He said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And he said, Yes, angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, You are concerned about the bush for which you did not labor and which you did not grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also many animals? This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. Please be seated. So a question put to Jonah two times. And the question is, is it right for you to be angry? See it in verse 4, first instance. Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah. So the, the first asking of the question exposes Jonah's emotional state. It's anger. And God says, actually, the words, is it good for you to be angry? Is it, is it good, good thing? Tov. Is it good for you to be angry? Now, the, the word for anger here in Hebrew uh, refers to something heating up. It's like kindling a fire. And all of us can relate to that. When we get angry, we feel flushed and, and hot. And uh, so God says, Jonah, why are you angry? Is it right for you to be burning up like that? Interesting thing, this word for anger oftentimes coincides with another word, uh, a noun for anger, uh, which is an anatomical uh, feature of the face, and that is the nose. We're going to find that the emotion that Jonah has and the emotion that God has in this passage are both associated with facial features. But first, anger and the nose. Why? Well, perhaps it's that when we're angry, we inhale and our nostrils flare as we heat up with that emotion. So is it right for your nose to get hot? Jonah, think about it. It's a question. Well, well Jonah is... Uh, Praying to God. In fact, in verse 2 and 3, Jonah gives us here an explanation for his flight at the very beginning of the story. We're not told really why when the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, he runs 
all the way the other direction until now. So this is an explanation of something that's happened earlier in the story. And interestingly enough, uh, Jonah uses 39 words. Remember that, because it's going to be important later on in this little prayer. And he says, you know, I'll tell you why I'm angry, God. I'm angry because the people of Nineveh are Assyrians. They are the enemies of God. They're known to be brutal. And we live in fear of the Assyrians. And it's not so much that I'm afraid to go into that city, because I do it. But what I'm afraid of is of living in a world where the, the enemies of God, the perpetrators of evil, are embraced by God. And if that's the way you are, and if that's the way the world is, then I'd rather end the game right now with my own death. Please take my life. See, Jonah knows that the Ninevites matter to God. For him, they're an object fit for destruction. But for God, they're an object of deep affection. And they will elicit his compassion. He says, I just, I just knew that you would be gracious. Verse 2, you're a gracious God. You're slow to anger. Now, that's an interesting phrase, slow uh, to anger. In Hebrew, it means your nose is long. Many of you think that I'm a very compassionate person, uh, but that's not true. Uh, but in, in, in the Hebrew mind, uh, a long nose was associated with uh, patience. Why? Possibly because as you take that inhale, you take a long time to get that breath of air. And it, if you have a long nostril, right? And, and that allows you to think things over a little bit and gain a bit of perspective. And God is known for this. Uh, yes, God will be angry. But he counts to ten. It's a long inhale. And he thinks about what's really important to him. And in fact, he changes his mind. And Jonah said, I knew that you would change your mind if I went to Nineveh and told them judgment was coming. And they repented. The Ninevites matter to God, Jonah knows, because people, people matter uh, to God. Two doctrines make this very clear to Jonah, as they should to us. First, the doctrine of creation. Second, the doctrine of redemption. I mean, in the doctrine of creation, uh, we see that human beings are the pinnacle of all that God makes. What is man that thou should think so highly of him? Thou hast made them a little bit lower uh, than yourself. Genesis chapter 1 gives us, more than anything else, I believe, a kind of hierarchy of being. Uh, first, he creates the plant life. And then he creates above that the animal life. And then above that, human life. Most precious of all, God says, let us make human beings in our image. And in our image, he made them male and female. They're like God. We are like God, human beings. That's how important we are to God. That's the value that we carry. We matter to God. Some scientists refer to the anthropic principle. Whatever scientific value it has, I think it's of interest to the theologian. The anthropic principle notes that there are certain cosmic constants, the, um, the, the strong and weak nuclear forces, the gravitational force, electromagnetic forces, the presence of carbon, the nature of water. Uh, these and other forces seem to be finely tuned. So that if you adjusted them in the most minuscule ways in either direction, you could not have the world that we have that is so hospitable to life, to human life in, in particular. So it's called the anthropic uh, principle. 
We live, some say, in a Goldilocks universe that's optimized for human life. We believe there's a creator, and God created the universe to be most suitable to that uh, form of life called human being, the image of God. It's doctrine of creation. Jonah knows that people matter to God. Doctrine of redemption. In fact, in verse uh, 2 and 3 here, Jonah is recalling, he's actually quoting from the Pentateuch, from the book of Exodus in chapter uh, 34. Let me give you the story there. Israelites have been rescued from slavery in Egypt. God has delivered them a great redemption. He brings them to the foot of the holy mountain, Mount Sinai. The cloud and the fire and the thunder. And Moses is summoned up to the mountain. God has a face-to-face with Moses. And he says, Moses, you Israelites will be my treasured possession. I have chosen you among all the nations of the earth to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. You're precious to me. I love you. And I'm going to bind myself to you by covenant. And, and the expression of that covenant is uh, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue and, and the Mosaic Law associated with it. This is the charter of Israel. And it, it's really like the marriage certificate, God binding his heart to the Israelites. What's happening? Well, meanwhile, beneath the cloud and the thunder, the Israelites are gathered and uh, they're playing poker or something. They're, they're taking off their, their uh, gold earrings and their bracelets. And they're saying, hey, let's melt this stuff down. And they're creating a golden calf. And they're beginning to worship their idolaters. It's like his God is on his wedding night ready to embrace his bride. The people of God are sleeping around. It's just some kind of a bachelor party. And, and you know what? God gets angry. We read there, his nose starts to heat up as well. But it's a long nostril, God's is. And his Judgment is always subordinate to his love. He thinks about it and he says, I'm going to change my mind. I'm going to embrace these people because I love them, because they matter to me. And he has compassion. And Jonah says, see, I remember that story. I remember you're a redeeming God. And I know if I carry this word of judgment into Nineveh, you'll be just that same kind of God. You'll have the same kind of compassion on them that you've had on us. And Boy, that's a world I don't want to live in. He's angry. People matter to God. And that's the message of the whole book of Jonah. That's the message today. People matter to God. But the question is, how can they matter to me? How can I feel their importance on an emotional uh, level? Well, we get an answer to that, or begin to anyways, in the second asking of this question. Is it right for you to be angry? Is it good for you to be angry? Uh, we see that question now again in verse 9, but with a slight nuance. There's a bit of a variation. God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the bush? Help me out here, a bush. So there's a little bit of a backstory, but I want you to notice now, verses 10 and 11, that is a 39-word explanation of something that has just happened earlier. It's God's interpretation. It's God's motivation for the bush incident. Not talking politics here, by the way. He's telling, he's telling Jonah what he is to have learned in the bush incident. So let's look at the bush incident. Jonah um, suspects that God is not going to do what Jonah wants him to do, which is bring judgment on Nineveh. Nevertheless, just in case, he doesn't want to miss the opportunity to see fireworks if they come. And so, you know, he's, he's kind of come from west to east through the city, and he pops out the east side, and he moves up onto a, a hill. 
hillside. And by the way, remember, Nineveh is uh, near modern-day Mosul in Iraq. It's a very dry and an arid place. It's hot. And so there he sits, uh, heating up both in face and in body. And God says, I've got an idea. Jonah, I see, has sheltered himself in a sukkah. Or you heard of Sukkoth, which means a booth or booths. He's made a little uh, Jewish hut for himself, Israelite hut, made out of stones probably or clay, maybe not much bigger than this uh, pulpit. Uh, But in in, uh, that part of Mesopotamia, wood was a scarcity. And so whereas a a Jewish sukkah would have uh, wood beams or sometimes you see dried branches, uh, grape branches that are hanging over those booths, Jonah probably doesn't have a lid on his booth. And so there he sits, and as the sun gets high enough, then he runs out of shade. And God says, I'm going to bless Jonah. So he makes a a plant grow up. It's a castor oil plant or a gourd of some kind with large leaves, and it springs up over the night, and it provides a wonderful canopy of shade. And the text says, Jonah rejoiced. He had an emotional response. Wow, this is great. Joy is the word that's used. Then 24 hours later, God appoints a worm. And the worm comes and chews at the base of this, cuts it off, and the, the uh, bush dries out now. There's a sultry, hot wind. The sun is beating on Jonah's head. And now Jonah feels very uncomfortable, very threatened. And he says, you know, I'm getting angry now. I had this bush. I had it all worked out. i got to be here 40 days. No fireworks are happening yet. And he's angry. And God asks Jonah a question. Well, is it right to to be angry, Jonah, uh, about the bush? Think about it. You know, that's his question. Well, now, l- let me ask you, why do you think God does this? What's the bush incident about? I want to suggest two, two things are going on here. The first thing he's trying to do is he's trying to point out the source of heat in Jonah's life. He wants to sensitize Jonah to the source of heat in his, in his life. Uh, let's be honest, anger can be very satisfying. Is that not right? Anger can be really a pleasurable experience. I um, am embarrassed to tell you a story a few years ago. Um, and it's not the last time I've been angry, by the way, but I just got to tell you the story. because um, I was driving around Boston Common. If you've been to Boston Common, you know, it's these two odd-shaped blocks that are not square, and they're surrounded by one-way roads. Right? So if you're trying to get anywhere adjacent to Boston Common, you've got to sequence yourself just properly to make all these one-way turns in order to get to where you're going. If not, you get thrown out into oblivion and you spend the next 20 minutes trying to get back into that sequence. Well, I was going to a church right on Boston Common called Park Street Church. And I was running late, but that's no problem for me because I'm a Boston driver and I know how to get to where you're going very quickly and make up time. Time moves backwards when you drive in Boston, actually. So I'm driving along Boston Common. And what happens, but there are these three stretch limousines. You know, just this, this reek of money. You know, it's so ostentatious. They're real long things. And they're a hazardous traffic because they're taking all these right turns and they have to swing wide to avoid the cars. So they're pushing cars out of their lanes. And these cars are going off out of the loops. So I think I can handle this. And I, I put the gas on. And I move right up between there, about four inches apart between a couple of them, so that as they swing wide, they cannot make the the, the, the one that's following cannot make the turn and follow the other one, and and, they sh- and it has to shoot right off. And you know the, the best way to handle this, by the way, if you're looking for advice, is do not make eye contact. Um, 
that signals too much, and uh, you, you don't want to see, you don't want to humanize. Um, so it's, it's, getting, it's, it's kind of this tinted window, but I'm like face-to-face with this tinted window. I'm not looking at them at all. My, I'm not even looking at, at Anne, my wife, either, because she's wondering what in the world is going on here. I'm feeling very insecure. Uh, and sure enough, hit the next corner, I separate these limos, and one of them has to go straight off this one-way road, uh, and, and I break up the pack, and I think, this is a victory for the little guy, you know? I was hot with anger, it's righteous indignation, and I've, and I've done the Lord's work today. <clears throat> so, I head off, my, off to church, and uh, you know what that's like on Sunday morning, right? And, I, and I, I'm, I'm, as I said, I'm a little bit late, and so I come right to the curb. I think the best thing to do is to let Ann out at the curb, and then I'll go find a parking place. And uh, so I'm, I'm there, and Ann's getting out of the car. To my horror, uh, limousines pull up right behind me. <laughs> and it turns out that the bride, who's a very close friend of mine, steps out of the limousine. And I hope she's not listening today. Um, but that was a very humiliating... I tell you, it was a very enjoyable experience until I was held accountable. Uh, the anger can be pleasant. And, and, and Jonah is enjoying uh, the anger to this extent. The word, um, there's a word that's repeated all the way through the book of Jonah, and it's bad. The word bad. The word evil. It's translated various different ways, but it comes up nine different times. And it comes up most pronounced here at the end, the climax in verse 1 of chapter 4, where we have translated, but this was very displeasing to Jonah. The Hebrew reads a little closer to... Um, but this was evil to Jonah, a great evil. You see, the source of Jonah's anger is a violation of his own sovereignty. It's evil, not in any objective sense, it's evil to Jonah. It's bad to Jonah. You and I live in a day when uh, good and bad is very subjective. And we will oftentimes say, well, it's, it's bad for me, but not for you. Or it's, it's maybe good for you, but not for me. See? Ethics is relative to individuals. But if that's the case, then is it any surprise that we're very emotionally bland when we turn on the TV and we see other people suffering in Seattle or around the world? If good and bad is nothing more than what's good for me or bad for me, when I see good or bad things happening to other people, I just feel kind of flat. I don't get it. Social justice becomes very problematic and unappealing to me because why would I want to help other people with their problems when that's really not bad for me? This is the hot life. What makes us angry is when our own welfare is transgressed. When we put ourselves at the center. This is the hot life. And we see this in uh, Cain. Uh, he heats up because his, his welfare is threatened by the favor God shows Abel. And so he kills him. A Potiphar gets hot as well because there's an allegation, false allegation, that someone is after his wife and he takes Joseph and throws him in prison and throws away the key without asking a single question. The Balaam is out with his donkey and the donkey's stopped on a path by an angel who's in front of him, but Balaam doesn't realize that. He gets so angry he starts beating the, the donkey. Samson, he, he makes a bet and uh, somebody gives away the clue to the riddle and uh, he goes and kills 30 uh, uh, um, Philistines in Ascalon to take their clothes to pay the bet. He's so angry, hot. Saul finds out from his son Jonathan that uh, David is left without a word and Saul is so filled with rage. This is a personal offense to him that he picks up a, a spear and he throws it at his own son. A fire is kindled within him. Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? The second reason God 
uh, gives him this experience with the bush, I think, is to, con- is to cultivate, cultivate the eye that looks with compassion. Remember, I told you that anger is associated with the nose. Compassion is associated with the eye. Oftentimes, the word that we have here for compassion is associated with the word for eye. Because the eye is the instrument of perception. Because I can see things that I wouldn't otherwise know, can see through things, can see the value of things. Also, the eye is the, the uh, organ, one of the organs of grief, in that uh, our uh, emotion, our sadness becomes visible there. So this word is also oftentimes translated as to look with pity, to look with sadness upon, to show compassion. It's what you see with your eye. And, and God is helping Jonah now see compassionately. Look at that bush, Jonah. It evoked emotion in you. What kind of emotion uh, was that? So he says, is it right for you to be angry about the bush? It's kind of a trick question. Here I think this is a very prophetic passage because we see God speaking to Jonah the way Jesus always spoke to people, where he'd ask questions, and there's like no right answer. You can't, you're trapped either way. I mean, Jonah says, if I say no, I don't have a right to be angry about the bush, then immediately that acknowledges I'm not the center of the universe morally. If I say yes, then I have to concede that a piece of vegetation has value. And if a piece of vegetation has value, then a pl- a, an animal would have even more value. Cattle or something. And if cattle had value, then a human being would have even more value than that. And gosh, people would matter to me. And I would feel compassionate towards even the people of Nineveh. Now God says, let's look at the Ninevites. C.S. Lewis says, if we could really see what a human being was, we would be tempted to fall down on our face and worship the glory, the image of God, every human being, from those who are most beautiful to those who are most wretched and broken, from those who are most successful to those who are most failed, those who are most visible in society and those who are least visible in society. Every single human being matters to God. If the hot life is like Cain and these others, the compassionate life is like Jesus, who when he beholds the multitude, he can see through them. And he sees sheep who are like, people who are like sheep without a shepherd. Or like the Apostle Paul, who after knowing Jesus in his resurrection power, doesn't look at people anymore in a temporal way or in a human way. He says, well, now we see with the eyes of faith, we look at people uh, not according to flesh, not according to human standards. Well, the vine came and go in a night, but human beings are eternal. They last forever. Well, we see the source of Jonah's heat, and we see the perspective that elicits compassion in our lives. But how do you make the trade? How do you exchange one for another? Peg gives me this shirt because, in fact, you look at your bulletins, you'll see one of those pictures down below. You'll see a group of men who have oars and they're on a dock and they each have a shirt slung over their shoulder. It's an old practice in men's rowing to pull up aside these crews at the beginning of the race and shout and say, would you like to bet shirts? And after the race is over, the two boats would pull uh, side by side, interlock their oars, and they'd approach and the Losing team would take off their shirts and hand them across to the very same man in the same seat uh, in the other boat. It's an exchange. It's a trade. 
And so God invites Jonah and friends, you and me, to make the trade, to make an exchange. He says, God says to Jonah, look, I know that your concern is your welfare. That's what makes you hot. Your safety, your security, your happiness. Jonah, would you give that to me? Would you give me responsibility for your welfare? Even though you have run away from me, have I not chased after you to the farthest ends of the earth? Even though you have been thrown into the sea and dropped down to the depths of death itself, Sheol, have I not met you there with a a redemptive fish to carry you back up to dry land, Jonah? Can you trust me? And Jonah, if you will give me concern for your welfare, will you let me give you concern for other people? Will you take from me now as your new mission in life, as your new project, the service of, the compassion for people? They matter to you like they matter to me. That's the trade. Now, I want to give you uh, two very practical and tangible ways to experience this. It's certainly not the only way. I mean, Really, there are two dynamics to this. One is learning to trust God, and the other is developing empathy for other people. And we're sort of focused on giving today, and giving comes in a lot of different ways. It's not just financial, but let me talk to you about financial giving just for a second. One of the great things about giving generously financially is recognizing that you belong to God. Jesus says we'll we'll serve one of two masters, mammon or God. When you give, you break all the rules of mammon. You violate its uh, law. There's no way of accounting for it. Rich Stearns, one of our friends, and Renee, a member of our congregation here, were wrestling with a financial loss in 1987 when the market dropped uh, 22%. Rich now is the president of World Vision, known to many of us. And uh, he was rushing home, pouring over the newspapers on the kitchen table to look at the carnage uh, financially, and his kids were getting worried about them. What's wrong with Daddy? They were asking Renee. And uh, Renee says this, Honey, you've become obsessed by this, and it's not healthy. You're even scaring the children. We have our marriage, our health, our friends, our children, your new job. So much to be thankful for. You need to let go of this and trust God. And Rich writes, Don't you hate it when someone crashes your pity party? (laughs) Renee suggested that we stop and pray about it, which we did, and then suggested something quite shocking. Right now, she says, we need to get out our checkbook and write some big checks to support the Lord's work to our church, the missionaries we support, and the poor. That's the best way to break the spell that all of this has put over you. This is the Lord's money, not ours. And Rich writes, and so we did. To my amazement, as we wrote the last checks and sealed them in envelopes, I felt free. I was no longer depending on my bank accounts. I was depending on God. Those tough times passed, the economy gradually got better, and I learned a lesson about where to put my trust. Giving is just one example of how we can cultivate a trust in God. The other focal practice I want to give you will help you develop empathy for other people, and it's serving. There are a lot of ways uh, to serve. Listen to what uh, C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity about the power of serving on your heart. Lewis writes, Mere Christianity, it would be quite wrong to think that the way to become charitable is to sit trying to manufacture affectionate feelings. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Some people are cold by temperament. And that may be a misfortune for them, but it's no more a sin than having a bad digestion is a sin. 
And it does not cut them out from the chance or excuse them from the duty of learning charity or compassion. The rule for all of us is perfectly simple. Do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love them. See, as we serve people, they become important to us. We feel compassion for them. One final uh, little illustration. A week and a half ago, I was in Chicago, and there's a great Chicago pizzeria called uh, Lou Molnati. And uh, Lou passed away, but the business was passed on to his two sons, the Malnati brothers. And in 1995, they had nine shops. And they were approached by a pastor who said to these gentlemen, I think you should tithe. And they said, well, we're Christians. Of course we tithe on all of our stores. He says, no, you've got nine stores. I want you to build a tenth store and tithe the whole store to serve the community. What? Said, yeah. I want you to come and build a store right in the heart of Lawndale in Chicago. This section has been burnt out since the riots of 1967. It's underserved. It's a broken place. You're not going to make any money here. But you come into this place. And they did. They built a a Lumanani pizzeria right there. And they did make money. And they hired all the people right from the community. And all of the proceeds since that day have gone back into charitable organizations that serve that community. I can tell you where the Malnati's hearts are. It's in that community in Lawndale. They have grown in compassion through that experience. Well, the book of Jonah is a cliffhanger. It's like 24, actually. It kind of doesn't resolve itself. It leaves itself open. You wonder, how did it happen? What, what happens to Jonah? Now, there are two reasons for that. One is that only history will reveal the one who makes true compassion possible. The one who on the cross, demonstrates more empathy than anyone else will ever know. And the one who, coming out of the tomb into eternal life, has secured human safety for all time, all peoples. The other reason is that history uh, needs for you to come to this question. Is it right for you to be angry? needs you to hear this question. What is your answer? Will you put your oar in the water and see with compassion as well? Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, those of us who have worshipped this morning have celebrated the fact that we belong to you. We belong to the Father. We are in the Son through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Because of that, our welfare is secure. And because of that, we know the heart of God. May we embody it. Bring to our minds someone or someones who even this week we might reach out to with compassion and make their burden our burden and our resources their resources. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All University Presbyterian Church online audio is available on both CD and cassette. If you would like to support the mission of UPC by ordering copies of sermons or classes, please visit www.upc.org forward slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.